Dear gracious Father, Lord, we just thank you, we bless you, we praise you, for you are a holy and sovereign God, and you are worthy of all worship and praise that we can gather within us. Lord, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. I thank you for each person that's here tonight, Lord, um, that you've called each of us to, to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, we want to worship you. We want to grow in Christ-likeness, Lord. We want to be salt and light wherever we go. And so we just pray that as we work through these weeks, Lord, that we would we would give thanks to you. We would give glory to your name. And Lord, that we would grow to be the servants of Christ that you call us to be. Lord Jesus, it's in your glorious and magnificent name we ask these things. Amen. All right. So again, my name is Rick Jones. And this is Apologetics 101 or whatever it is, a defense of the faith and however they listed that. Uh, we'll be working through this over 10 weeks. We'll split it at the end. October 5th. There's one night. There's an evangelism training that will be in the sanctuary. So we'll all move in there for that. Um, so excited about that as we work through this whole process. Uh, man, I've been doing apologetics for a it's, it's been a long time. It's been a long time, probably over 20 years. I kind of I got into it by accident and and um, it was really it came from a crisis of, of faith for me is that I was man, I was my youngest son and I'd lay in bed with him to help him go to sleep. And we were listening to Adventures in Odyssey. And and there was this one. You may not be familiar with it. You may be. But anyway, Eugene Meltzner, super smart guy. And and he just he says, well, what if what if the word is not true? What if it's not true? And man, that just haunted me. And I said, God, what if your word is not true? What if it's not true? And he just spoke to me clearly and he just said, ask any question you want. Ask any question you want. And so I just started asking questions. And man, it would either be in a podcast, in a book, somebody would give me an article and God would answer the question that I asked. And sometimes it would just be a day or two. Sometimes it would be three or four weeks would go by. And the Spirit would say, you asked that question, remember? I just answered it. And I asked so many questions. God answered so many. I just quit asking questions. Because I knew when the time come, He would give me the answers. And that was, man, that was a two, three-year process of kind of going through that and really didn't know it was even apologetics. And kind of got into that. And so that just... That got me on this path. And so, like I said, it's probably been about 20 years that I've been doing this and teaching this and, and walking down this road. I love it. I mean, it's, um, you know, sometimes people sit there and think that it's, oh, that's just for the weird people. And so, one, I'm thankful that so many people are here tonight. You know, you've joined me in my weirdness, so thank you. I don't know whether you knew you were signing up for that, but that's what that is. And so, um, anyway, that's... We'll walk through it. You can ask questions at any time. If it's something that's not really relevant to what we're talking about for tonight, we'll kick that to the end of class or after class. I'll always try to answer them for you. Uh, if I don't have an answer, I'll tell you, and I'll go find an answer. I'll go find an answer. Um, I work in the bookstore. I am on staff here, and so I'm the director of the bookstore. Uh, I, one of the ministers has accused me of saying, this is just going to be one running commercial for the bookstore. <laughs> you know, no apologetics, just come and buy and shop, and it's all going to be good. I promise you it's not going to be that, okay? It's, it's not going to be that, so we're going to work through that whole process. Now, the sheet of paper that you have, if it's on the screen, it's on your paper. 
That's as simple as that is. If it's on the screen, it's on your paper. If there's anything else that I say, and you're like, well, that's worth writing down, and it's not on the screen, then write it down. If you ask me to repeat it, I probably won't remember what I said. So you only got one shot to get it. Um, they are recording this. They'll post it to the website. I don't know how long that'll take for that to happen. But if you want to go back and listen, you can go to Bellevue's website and pick that up. Or it'll be loaded onto Bellevue Library's um, page where you can go and you can search the library links and you can get this message. And really, you can get past messages from 2000. 19, 18, and 17, I think. Um, so other than that, that's any questions? We good. Class starts at 6.30. It ends at 7.45. They said it should 6.30. Look, I'm just going to tell you right now, if we end at 6.30, that's a minor miracle. I just, it just, it rarely does it happen, but it's possible. Okay? So let's go and start this whole thing. Like I said, why apologetics? A defense of the faith. I'll find out who did that. <laughs> I will find out. Heads will roll on that there, but shop the bookstore. <laughs> but anyway, so 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reference. And this literally becomes the workhorse for the apologetic. This is the verse. I mean, there's lots of verses that deal with apologetics within the New Testament. Uh, this is the key one. This is the key one. And I, I underlined yet with gentleness and reference. Yet with gentleness and reverence. Yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, I know some of you, and you're like, you're just as sweet as you can be, and that's not a problem, and it's just like, I struggle to get into conversations, but I know some of you, and you know who, you know who you are, right? It's like, I'm going to win the argument. I'm going to win the argument. That's not apologetics. That's just being obnoxious. That's not apologetics. Yet with gentleness and reverence, it's important how we deliver God's truth. We always have to deliver God's truth, but it's also important on how we deliver it, yet with gentleness and reverence. All right, and the next verse is, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Philippians 1.16. I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. All right, and so that word defense that you see in those two verses, it's the Greek word apologia. It's the Greek word apologia, okay? And it's probably seven or eight times throughout the New Testament we find that word. Um, and again, here it is again with 1 Peter 3.15, defense. And what does it mean? It's a speech of defense or a reply. The act of making a defense. And so it says, always being ready to make a defense. And in the culture that we live in today, man, that is of great importance. So much more so than when I was growing up, right? I, I came to Christ later in life. I was 24 years old, something like that. Um, but growing up, man, I didn't know any Mormons or Muslims or atheists or agnostics. I didn't know. Everybody was Christian. 
at least in name only. Man, that's, man, with the advent of the internet, man, that wall has been torn down. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just often we, we're in a battle, we just don't know what the battle is. Nor do we even know what to do with the battle. Well, apologetics will help us in this area. It's not the, it's not the silver bullet, but it will help us in this area of always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to give you an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. All right, so why apologetics? Um, there's usually three things, but I found this little diagram, and I thought it was pretty cool, so I'd put it in here. But there's four things we're going to talk about tonight. So one, apologetics will help strengthen your faith. Apologetics will help strengthen your faith. And then next, it validates Christian truth. And then it refutes error. It will help you refute error. And then here's the beautiful thing is, man, it leads, it helps you lead the lost to the gospel. Please hear what I didn't say. Is that apologetics saves you. It does not. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ saves you. But when you can have apologetic discussions, man, it makes it so much easier to get into conversations that will lead you to the gospel. And so like on the 31st this month, uh, we're going to cut the class in half. And then a friend of mine is going to, man, he's great in apologetics. Uh, he's going to turn around and spend about 20 minutes. And of course, the next week we'll go in and deal with uh, the evangelism training with the three circles. He's going to spend about 20 minutes just talking about how do we use the gospel or how do we use apologetics to get to the gospel? What does that look like? What does that sound like? Man, if you can get into conversations about brokenness, right? I think everybody would agree the world's messed up. I don't care whether you're Christian, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, the world's messed up. We all recognize there's a problem. We just disagree on what the problem is. Man, when you start talking about brokenness, people understand. Whether it's in their personal life, whether it's in their family, whether it's with people that they work with, we all understand brokenness because we experience it in some way, shape, or form. Man, just talking about that is that's the that's the ramp for getting people to the gospel. And again, whether it's the problem of evil, why would a good God send good people to hell? All of those are ramps that we can begin a discussion with to move people towards the gospel. That's the ultimate goal, is that we lead the lost to the gospel, that we can share that. We good? Any questions? All right. So, first thing is, is apologetics will strengthen your faith. That is the first purpose of apologetics. It will strengthen your faith. Look, I... I'm not, a, I'm not one of these gifted people when it comes to evangelism. I stutter, I struggle, I stammer, I get fearful. Why? Well, one of the, somebody's going to ask me a question, I don't know. Apologetics will take that one away. 
It doesn't mean that I still don't get fearful, that I still don't stutter, that I still don't stammer, but I don't worry about them asking questions that either I can't answer or that I can't get answers to. That I can't get answers to. Bless you. And as we work through this, what I found out was, is once I kind of, somebody introduced me what apologetics was, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty cool. I got this one book by Lee Strobel, and it's called The Case for Faith. Literally, as far as I know, that's the first apologetic book I read. And it's, he covers what he calls the big eight. Those are the eight most common questions that Christians face from skeptics. I thought, man, I just have to learn the answer to eight questions, and I'm good. And I'm good. And so, man, I read that book, and I studied, and, man, I just started reading research and what other people were doing on this, and I just out having conversations. And really what I found out is, man, if you could learn five of them, you'll got 80% of the questions. Five of them will cover 80% of the questions that you'll face. We just have to learn them, and we have to learn to share them with reverence and love, with gentleness and love, with honor and respect. Right? We're not winning arguments. We're trying to get people to the gospel. We're trying to get people to the gospel. So apologetics will strengthen your faith. Right? Man, attacks from atheists and skeptics, they can leave believers with doubts and weaken their faith. Man, I've been teaching. Started out in middle school. I spent eight or 90 years teaching middle schoolers. Man, if you're if you're there, God bless you. That's that's a, man. That's a you're amazing, you're amazing. And so then I jumped up to high schoolers, and and now I teach with Ben Taylor on Sunday mornings with college students. And man, I don't know how many stories that I've heard from students that come back and they say, "Man, my professor has just eaten my lunch. This person did this, or man, I don't I don't even know what to believe anymore." Man, that's, that's just the world we live in. That's why 1 Peter 3.15 exists. Always be ready. It will strengthen your faith. Whether you say anything or not, you'll be locked into your faith. It will give you that opportunity that's like, I'm standing here. I may not have an answer, but I know God is good. I know He is faithful. He's created everything with purpose and design. I'm standing on that whether you ever have a conversation with anybody else or not. Hopefully you do, but just know it will help strengthen your faith. It supplies Christians with rational, logical, and evidential truths that undergird their trust in the Bible. And I would circle or underline that word evidential. You're going to see it, it keeps showing up in Scripture, and it will keep showing up in our conversations. I teach some students on Wednesday morning, and one of the first things that I cover with them is we talk about faith, right? The world will talk about blind faith, and then they assign their definition of our faith as blind faith. The problem is the Bible doesn't talk about a blind faith. It doesn't. When the Bible talks about faith, it's talking about a faith grounded in evidence, there's reason for our faith. Right? I tell the students, I said, man, if there is no evidence for Christianity, we shouldn't be Christians. 
Plain and simple. If there's no evidence for Christianity, we should not be Christians. But God has not left us without evidence. He has not left us with a blind faith. Man, he wants us to have a strong and a bold and a vibrant faith, and he'll grow that in us. He'll grow that in us. Ephesians 4, 14 and 15, it says, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, there's that idea again, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Even Christ. And again, man, the gospel is not just getting somebody saved. The gospel is never less than that, right? But the working out our faith looks so much more than that, right? It's called flourishing. I mean, when we look in Genesis chapter 1, and it talks about, man, God gave us dominion. That's that idea of flourishing. And then there's that verse, hey, work for the welfare of your city. That word welfare is shalom, but it's not just peace. Man, it's a vibrant, active, living out what God has called us to. It's flourishing. It's flourishing. He hasn't called us to be buffeted back and forth by the winds and the waves, but that's what we do because we're not grounded in God's Word and we're not ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us with gentleness and reverence. Okay? Good? Colossians 2.4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Man, I can't read these verses without going back to Genesis chapter 3, right, and the fall. Where Satan, man, he was just persuasive. He didn't force Eve and Adam to do this, but he was persuasive. And he brought false arguments to Adam and Eve. And they followed the false arguments instead of the truth of what God gave them. We're tempted with that every day. Every day we're tempted with that. But we've got to be grounded in the truth of what God's Word says. And in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And I've heard people sit there and say, you see, we shouldn't, we shouldn't mess with philosophy. No, we shouldn't, just, we shouldn't mess with bad philosophy. Right? And the best way to counter bad philosophy is with good philosophy. The only way that you're going to beat a bad idea is with good ideas. We have to train up our minds that we can love the Lord with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our mind. And unfortunately, what we find in the church in America today, we've left the mind part behind. We've left the mind behind, and I just have faith. I just have faith. What does that even mean? What does that even mean? Man, this is one noisy little platform. Am, am, I the only one that, am I the only one that's hearing that? Okay. I can't believe I'm hearing it, huh? Uh, <laughs> okay. So I'm just going to keep going then. It'll bother me, but it won't bother you. Uh, so anyway, Colossians 2.8. 
And then Hebrews 5.14, it says, But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. We have to train ourselves to be able to discern between good and evil. Right? When Steve talks about the spiritual warfare, it's like we train ourselves to call it what it is. It's not a mistake. It's not a fault. It's sin. And that's Satan tempting us with a lie. Call it what it is, but we've got to be able to discern good and evil. And what's even harder to discern is what's good and what's God's best. That takes a deeper level of maturity to separate those two. What's good and what's God's best. Questions? Apologetics will strengthen your faith. The next thing is, it validates Christian truth. It validates or confirms Christian truth. And again, I was just talking with the students this morning, and it's about this idea, and they asked me, you know, why is it important that Christianity is a historical faith? Why is it is important that it's a historical faith? Because it can be tested. So it can be tested. And so I gave the same example, and it's, it's from uh, New Age, and it's like, hey, no, actually, this one's from Mormonism, but it says, hey, I just want you to know, I, I'm just like you, but I've lived such a good life that I've become a god, and I'm going to get my own planet. And that's just that's a belief in Mormonism. How would you prove that or disprove that? You can't. If you can't prove something to be true or disprove it to be true, it's most likely false. But with Christianity, because it's a historical faith, we can go back and look at the claims that are made within Scripture, and we can confirm a lot of those events that really happened. Man, I love it when somebody says to me, you know, Jesus is just a myth. Thank you for saying that. Because I know you have spent zero time looking at this issue. Man, because I can pull seven or eight people who are non-Christians that wrote in the first and second century that confirms that Jesus was a real person. They're not followers of Christ. They were just confirming what they knew to be true. Any historian that looks at it will tell you Jesus Christ really existed and he was really crucified on the cross. They may deny his deity but they don't deny his existence. And so when somebody tells me, oh, yep, he's just a myth, thank you. This will be an easy conversation, but with reverence and gentleness. Okay? So it helps us to validate the truth. It involves employing philosophical arguments, empirical and historical evidence for the Christian faith. And again, underline empirical, underline evidences. Man, God hasn't left us with a blind faith. There's evidence that he has left us with throughout all of creation, in his word, throughout history, that supports that Jesus is who he said he was. He did what he said he, was going to, he did, and he's going to do what he said he's going to do. 
There's tons of evidence. We just have to go find it. We have to learn it, and we have to share it. So the goal is to develop a rational and reasonable case for Christianity against opposing beliefs and worldviews. Against opposing beliefs and worldviews. Now, we often talk, and, and a lot of this will be, is we need to defend the faith that we have. First Peter 3.15 calls us to do that. But I also believe that the atheist, they have to defend their faith also. And the agnostic and the Muslim and the Hindu, they need to be able to defend their faith, why they believe what they believe. You know, so often we just let people pepper us with questions. And they put us on our heels, and it's like, man, it's just too many questions. I'll answer a couple questions, and I say, can I ask you a question? And then I'll ask them something about their belief. They need to defend it. They need to defend it. Uh, there's a guy out there called Greg Kokel. He wrote a book called Tactics. Um, you, should, you should get that book. We sell it in the bookstore. Uh, <laughs> man, it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing book because it teaches you the art of asking questions. And it's really, and I got this from Frank Turk. I didn't get it from uh, Greg Kokel, but there's really just three questions. If somebody says, I think Jesus is a myth, we'll just stay with that one. I think Jesus is a myth. Now, as Americans, our tendency is we want to defend that, and, we're, and, man, and we'll just make a cage match out of the whole thing. All right? My first response is going to be, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? And I let them explain to me what they mean by Jesus is a myth. Oh, okay, I think I now understand what you're asking. Can I ask you another question? How did you come to that conclusion? How did you come to that? What am I asking for when I ask that question? I'm asking for evidence for what they believe. Oh, okay. And then my third response will be, have you ever considered? Have you ever considered? And that's my opportunity to start defending my faith inserting the gospel, depending on wherever we're at. If you can learn those three questions and practice them and use them well, like I said, again, you know, man, our, our rugged individualism is, oh, I'll just defend this till the day we die, and you're not leaving until I do. Learn to ask questions, because when you ask questions well, then you can lead the conversation well. You can lead the conversation well. Acts 17, 2-3. According to Paul's customs, he went to them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence, underline and circle that evidence again, that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. If Paul's giving evidence for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's evidence. And where is Paul getting that evidence from? Where is he getting it? Well, one, he gets it from Scripture, the Old Testament, right? But because he's talking to the Greeks, right? They're, they're just not into the Old Testament Bible much at all. So he's also using creation. 
He's also using creation, right? Romans 1, and this is not on your sheet anywhere, but it's Romans 1, 18 through 20. And it talks about, man, it is creation. that God. It speaks of God. Psalms 19.1 does the same thing. The heavens declare His glory. The evidence is there for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We just have to know it's there. We have to see it, and we have to share it. So Lee Strobel, he spoke here a while back. Um, investigative reporter, he was an atheist. Maybe you may know his story. Here's a long quote. I apologize that it's so long, but it certainly gives us the context that we need. Um, spent a couple of years trying to disprove Jesus. Right? And his whole thing was his wife became a Christian. She messed up his whole life. And so like, we're going to fix this. All right? Two-year thing. And this is what he comes down to. After two years of studying the person of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, essentially I realized that to stay an atheist, I would have to believe that nothing produces everything. Non-life produces life. Randomness produces fine-tuning. Chaos produces information. Unconsciousness produces consciousness. And non-reason produces reason. Those leaps of faith were simply too big for me to take, especially in light of the affirmative case for God's existence and Jesus' resurrection and hence his divinity. In other words, in my assessment, the Christian worldview accounted for the totality of the evidence much better than the atheistic worldview. When we present the truth of Scripture, we can give evidence. We're never going to get to 100%. We're never going to get to a we can prove God without a shadow of a doubt 100%. We're never going to get there. God never intended for us to. God never intended for us to get there. But there's enough evidence that makes it reasonable that we should believe and follow him. And more than that, man, he's not just talking about what, what he found about Christianity. He's talking about what he found about atheism. Atheism makes these big, bold claims. It just can't back up any of them. It just can't back up any of these claims. And we've got a a lesson coming up in in the next 10 weeks where we're going to talk about this idea of evolution. Today, and I'll bring in some of the studies and stuff. Man, secular scientists are saying, we need to rethink this idea of evolution. It is not able to fulfill the claims that we say that it is. And we'll spend some time talking about that. Man, it, is, it blows my mind to hear scientists say this. It just can't hold the water that it claims. There's got to be another one. They're not going to get to supernatural creation, but they recognize Darwinian evolution can't explain it. But when we look at the Christian worldview, it best explains the reality of the world that we live in. Right? One of the questions I give our students is, go ask your friends this question. Do you think people are generally good or do you think they're generally bad? How they answer that question will give you insight into what their worldview is. Because if you think they're generally good, what does the Bible say? No, we're all wicked, sinful, evil people. And those are the good ones, Right? But we get into this whole mindset and we, I think, okay, so we're all good. That's why the world is doing so well right now. 
Because we're just all good people wanting to do the best thing for everybody else. No. That doesn't fit the reality of the world that we're in. And so we need to be able to think about these ideas. We need to be able to connect these dots. And we need to be able to share these truths with love and kindness. With love and kindness. Questions? Yeah. Amy. I'd say out of sheer laziness. I would say out of sheer... Look, Lee Strobel wasn't doing this because he was just some great humanitarian. He was doing it to prove his wife wrong. That's why he did it. It wasn't like, well, well, maybe this whole Jesus thing is true. That was not his motivation. It was, I'm going to prove this wrong and show you that what you're doing makes you foolish. Yeah, Ainsley? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, because she's praying and she's got friends that are praying that are moving in his heart. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's definitely worth seeing. It's definitely worth seeing. Um, I was going somewhere else with that and I forgot. So that'll happen a lot. Angela? Yeah. Yeah. You know, question that I'll, again, I'll ask is how many questions do I need to answer before you'll give your life to Jesus? How many do I need to answer before I, you will give your life to Jesus? Most of the time, it's like you, you can't answer enough questions for that to happen. Then this really isn't about an intellectual conversation, then is it? It's straight-up rebellion. Which, again, it, it resides in all of us. It resides in all of us. But if, if I can't answer enough of your questions, it's, like, let's go have hot wings or something because we're wasting each other's time at this point in time. But when you find somebody that's truly seeking, man, I'll spend hours with you. Talking, praying, looking at Scripture, answering questions if you're truly seeking. I'll tell you, this is just a blessing. This guy shows up today. He was in the store probably a couple weeks ago, and he was just broken. His name is Terry, and he was telling me about his nephew. 16 years old, has just basically turned from the Lord. And he says, I need a book. I need a book. I said, you mean besides the Bible? He says, yeah, he's not going to read that. So he's just walking me through this, what's going on with his, with his nephew. I said, here. I reached down and grabbed Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. See if I read this. I don't know. I said, look, we'll just pray. We prayed. 
bought the book, and he left. He shows up in the store today. And he says, you remember me? I said, I remember your beard. He's got one of these ZZ Top. You guys know? Never mind. ZZ, anyway, forget it. Forget it. You old people, you know what I'm talking about, right? And so, uh, so he's got this one of these. I said, I remember the beard. And he just laughs. He says, thanks. He said, I just needed to tell you. I was scared to death to give my nephew that book. And I says, tell me about it. He says, I gave him the book and I said, if you will just read this. I've never read the book. I'm told it's good. Will you read it? He read the book in one day throughout the night. Now, he hasn't come to Christ yet, but he read the book. And then his dad read the book. And they're just talking about the things that are in the book. Man, my prayer is, is that this young man repents of his sins and gives his life to Christ because that's what it's all about. And then we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. Then we move on from the gospel to sanctification. And I'm like, because there was a book that Lee Strobel wrote, That scratched this young man's itch. Man, that stuff excites me. And like I said, rarely do they come back into the store and tell me these stories. But man, when they do, I'm like, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the work that these other people have done. Because, man, it's a confusing world out there. Anyway, I probably spent longer on that than I needed to. Um, Also to refute error. Third purpose of apologetics is to refute error. The goal is to defend and uphold God's truth. And this is the point where, again, it's defending the faith here. We want to uphold the truth of God's word, of his son, of his character. And so this is where we get this, to refute error. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5 says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is the means of gain. And so these next verses, as you can see, man, doctrine just keeps showing up. Sound doctrine, false doctrine. You see, this is, I think, I could be wrong, I I hope I am wrong, is in the church in America, we've given up the intellectual high ground. We've given up the intellectual high ground to a secular world. And it's just like, just trust in Jesus and trust me, your life's going to be so much better. How many of you, if you've known Jesus for any length of time, I mean, your life's been perfect. I'd love to meet you. Look, your life doesn't become perfect. When you give your life to Christ. Matter of fact, it can become more problematic. 
It doesn't get perfect. But man, this is God's way. May we walk in it. All right, 1 Timothy 3, 1. In the last days, there will be difficult times. And then over in verse 12, right? I can't even remember what it is now. Verse 12, it talks about, um, it's just escaped me now, but you will struggle. Right? Oh, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, so again, man, if we're sharing the gospel and we're telling people, oh, nothing but roses and sunshine, that's a lie. That's a lie. If we can't share the gospel like that, we need to be open and honest about what they're getting into. Man, when I'm sharing the gospel and I get somebody and they're saying, yeah, I want to give my life to Jesus, hang on. Hang on, before you make that commitment, I just want to share a few things with you. You know all the friends you hang around with now? Yeah, in a year, they won't be your friends anymore. If your family's not believers, they'll mock you and they'll ridicule you. People at work, same thing. Are you ready for that? And now how many times they've said, if Jesus died on the cross for me, I will live that for him. You're ready to be saved. You're ready. You're like, you try to talk them out of it. And I'm not trying to talk them out of it. I just want them to understand what they're getting into. Let's not present a gospel that doesn't exist in Scripture. Let's not do that. Questions? 2 Timothy 4.3, For time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance in their own desires. Man, I spent six weeks teaching on progressive Christianity. Right? They hold to a form of godliness, although they deny its power. I'm going to give you some statistics coming up here in a little bit. Anyway, it just it blew me away when I read them. And I was just working on this this week, just kind of adding some things. My wife and I were kind of working through it. But anyway, they hold to a form of godliness, although they deny its power. Have nothing to do with these men. Have nothing to do with these men. Yeah. Kim. Man, you know, it's hard to define progressive Christianity. I'll just be honest with you. It's like postmodernism. It's, it's hard to put a definition on it. But ultimately, progressive... You know what? Does anybody remember the emergent church? It was kind of back in the, back in the 80s. You know, and it kind of, you know, it, 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 they say it went away. It just went underground. It's now called progressive Christianity, where it's uh, social, social gospel. It's the social gospel. And it's like, you know, Jesus is... He, he'd love... Love, 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 love. And Jesus loves you so much, he would never condone you for the lifestyle that you have. Hang on just a second. He'll never condone you for the lifestyle that you have. He will affirm you where you're at today because he loves you. They never talk about sin. They never talk about justice. They never talk about holiness. And so that's, you know, Jesus is more of this uh, great wise sage who we can walk through this life with when we need him. When we need him. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah, it is. Alyssa Childers has got one called Another Gospel. Lights out. It's awesome. She kind of came out of that whole movement. Uh, we sell that in the bookstore too, by the way. Um, <laughs> and it's great. And so there's a lot of stuff that's out there. I mean, if you just wanted this to, I mean, when I was preparing for this study, uh, it's called progressivechristianity.com. This is a website. And so I just go there and learn what do they say, what do they teach, and then I just start breaking it down. What does Scripture say? You know what? And that's how I learned about atheism. I would just go to atheistic websites, and I would write down their questions. And then I'd go find answers. And there was a thread that showed up in a social media thing. This is years ago uh, when I was still on social media. And so it was, and it was this atheism thing. And so I just jumped into their thread. And just started asking him some questions. And it was like, who is this guy? And why is he raining on our parade? They didn't answer the questions. They just blocked me. Right? That, was the, that was cancel culture before I knew what cancel culture was. Right? They just blocked me. Because, again, very few people are interested in having the conversations. They just want you to affirm them in their whatever their belief is, right? Man, to do this takes work. I'm, I'm just telling you, it takes work to do apologetics, to do worldviews, and to do it well. It takes time, and it takes effort. It's worth it. It's worth it. Uh, oh, here we go. This was from Barna Research. It came out in May of this year. And they got, it's Arizona Christian University, I think is what it is, um, Cultural Research Center. Uh, right there, I've got it. They questioned, or they surveyed 1,000 pastors, Christian pastors. 37% of the Christian pastors have a biblical worldview. And, you know, because I'm such a math guy, I'm like, well, that means, uh, my wife says that's 63%. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That means 63% don't. Christian, let that sink in. Pastors, 63% don't have a biblical world view. What are they teaching in their pulpits? Kent? Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think the survey went into that. Oh, I, I would, I would just, I'm going to throw this out there. I would think the majority would say, oh no, I got a biblical worldview. Look, I talk with students and they'll sit there and tell me, oh yeah, I got a biblical worldview. Well, what is a biblical worldview? What is a worldview? Well, it's,
Yeah, it's the same study. Or at least that had that information in it too. Yeah, when you find when you start getting into youth pastors and children's pastors, it was like 12% have a have a biblical worldview. Youth pastors. 12%. Yeah. Yeah, a worldview is basically a lens by which you see everything in the world. You interpret everything through the world. It's like rose-colored glasses. You're going to see everything in a rose color. And so for a biblical worldview is, is, man, we take everything and we run it through God's Word. Whether I like it or not, I run it through God's Word. Again, I was just telling the students this morning, I said, you know, this idea of hell... That's messed up. I wish everybody did get to go to heaven. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. I wish it, God made it, everybody gets to go to heaven. Right? Progressive Christianity believes that. There's only one problem. God's word doesn't say that. It is clear. As much as I wish it was true, I can't believe it. I can't follow it. I can't teach it. Because God's word says there is a day of judgment that's coming. And there is a heaven and there is a hell. And for us, or 63%, to not teach that, that's not love, that's hate. That's hate. Right? Because we take a definition of what the world says love is, which is not God's definition of what love is. Right? The world takes the terms we use and it gives them a brand new definition. They just don't tell you they've changed the definition. And so you think you're having the same conversation. And when you leave, it's like, you know, I just don't think I really connected there. Check your definitions. And I know, look, if you got teenagers, that's most of your conversations. I, I get that. You know, we've been through that, and it's just like we don't, we don't ever connect. I think maybe about 35, we may start connecting again with our kids. We change the definitions and the terms. We change the rules in the game. We just don't tell you that we change the rules. Right? 63%. Of Christian pastors. Now we dug a little bit deeper into this, Anna and I did. And and initially it kind of sounded like good news because we went and we found the demographic for um, Protestant evangelical pastors, right? Because it broke it down. Again, we're just talking Christian generally. 51% had a biblical worldview. Yeah, sweet. That's way better than 37. 49% don't. Protestant evangelical churches. 49% don't have a biblical worldview. And you're like, I'm not a pastor. I don't have to worry about it. Can't you have to worry about it? Right? How about this? Six to nine percent, and this is adults who self-identify as Christians. Okay, and that's that's a key term here. Adults that self-identify as Christians, six to nine percent have a biblical worldview. Angel, 
Yeah, you have to you have to go to the very bottom. I mean, I don't know how many pages it is. It's probably 30 or 40 pages. I think it what do we have to pay to get that? Oh, nothing. Okay. You have to go to the very end to get the questions and he'll break them down and and this the whole statistical analysis that he does and I mean, you have to be a numbers wonk to want to know that, but you have to work to the very end. But it's there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and so uh, scripture tells us this is going to happen. Scripture tells us this is, look, the days are going to grow darker. Look, it's going to be harder and harder to lead people to the gospel of Jesus Christ and then grow them in Christ-likeness. Scripture tells us that. Uh, I don't remember where I got the stat from, so I, but I remember hearing it. It takes 80 people today in a church to lead one person to Christ. Now, I don't know how they figure that out. Lee Strobel said this. We were on a, a, a truth webinar with Lee Strobel and a couple other people, and he said it takes 80 people, 80, 80 of us. So basically, what's in this room to lead one person to Christ? A year. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, and again, I mean, if you can pin somebody down and share it six or seven times in a row, maybe, the, I don't know, it probably won't work that way, but we, but we still, look, we don't share the gospel just because, oh, they're going to get saved. I mean, that, that does become a motivation. Look, we share the gospel to be faithful to what God's called us to. The victory is not ours. The victory is the Lord's. Man, and I remember... Early on, and just trying to look, just pressuring people to accept the gospel. Oh man, God convicted me. No, that's my job. Your job is to share with love and gentleness, right? And so it's not, are the days dark? They are. Are the victories going to be few? They are. We don't concern ourselves with the victories. We concern ourselves with being faithful with what God's called us to. So anymore, when I'm sharing, I expect them not to, to say yes. And when they do, you have to pick me back up. Salvation is God's job. The sharing is ours. The sharing is ours. You get into, what's the next one? Um, you start breaking this down. If you look at millennials today... About 2% of them have a biblical worldview of millennials. If you get Gen Z, right, those are our high schoolers, our early college students right now. We don't even know what the number is yet, but it's going to be less than 2%. It's going to be less than 2%. And what we find out is, is that, man, we are not preparing our students and our kids to handle these tough questions. There's answers for them. There's answers for them. We just have to do the hard work and get those answers and teach them how to share that. Again, we tell our college students, and, and if you've got any of your students who are in our class on the Sunday, 
Anyway, we tell them, you're not going to college to get a degree and to find a hot spouse and to get a job that you can make a lot of money. You are going to take that campus over for the cause of Jesus Christ. That's why you're on that campus. And we tell them. Now, I know, man, his parents are like, no, you need to go get a good job. Don't listen to that guy. He's weird. (laughs) Right? That's why we're here. No, you're there to take that campus over for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, while you're there, make sure that your testimony says, I care about people. I respect my teachers. I'm going to study. I'm going to get good grades. I'm going to get a degree. But that's secondary to your cause of going to that college campus. Or whether it's the military, or whether it's a trade school, or whether it's anywhere else. That is our platform for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and leading people there. So, is it any wonder that church members fail to understand the importance of biblical doctrine? We have given up the intellectual high ground. Just share the gospel and everything's going to be good. Hey, look, the life as a Christian will never be less than sharing the gospel. But it's always going to be more than just sharing the gospel. Man, we have got to think and talk about human flourishing and care about our culture and care about the people that are around us. Not just getting them saved. We mark a notch on our Bible and we move on. We good? Questions? All right. To refute error, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Man, that thing keeps coming up. Uh, But be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them the repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. God grants them. We need to be patient. We need to be able to teach even when we've been wronged. Even when we've been wronged, we take it. Right? Don't, don't feel like you need to go to a counselor just because somebody wronged you. I'm not against counselors. My daughter's one. But this idea that, you know, you bullied me and you hurt my feelings and I'm oppressed, man, that's not a part of a Christian's life because that's the way you're going to spend your whole life if, if, if that's where you're at. Be patient when wronged. Gentleness and correcting. Titus 1.9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound doctrine. So again, we spend time with our students. We're getting ready to start it again. We teach them how to study the Bible. We teach them how to interpret Scripture. And then we spend 10 weeks on doctrine. Because you need to know the core doctrines of the faith. Bill Mayer is an atheist. This is 2005. Yeah, I got time. He says, we're a nation that is unenlightened because of religion. I do believe that. I think that religion stops people from thinking. I think religion is a neurological disorder. I'm just embarrassed that it has been taken over by people like evangelicals, by people who do not believe in science and rationality. It's the 21st century. And I will tell you, my friend, the future does not belong to the evangelicals. The future does not belong to religion. It's hard for me to read something like that because I just begin to start dissecting everything. You know, the easy answer is he's right. The future belongs to Jesus Christ. That's who the future belongs to. But I just go through here and I just think, you know, he says religion stops people from thinking. You know, that's that's really a Marxist, Karl Marx idea, 
right? Religion is the opiate of the people, right? And so then he goes on. I think it's a neurological disorder. Then why do you got a problem with us? I just got this disorder and you're, and you're, and you're, and you're down on me. And then this part. People who do not believe in science and rationality. Now, this is 2005. This is how far the culture has swung, right? We live in a culture that can't define what a woman is. Men can get pregnant, and we can't figure out our gender. And we're the ones that are anti-science? Seriously? And anti-rational and anti-logic? That's 2005. That's how far the culture has swung where now the world is anti-science and anti-rational, and anti-logic. Man, the culture turns over so fast, we can't even keep up with it. And we'll talk more about that in a future class. But the future belongs to Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's our hope. Richard Dawkins, he's an evolutionary biologist over at Oxford. He says, mock them, ridicule them in public. Don't fall for the convention that we're all too polite to talk about religion. And again, I, was, I meet with some guys, and I told them, man, if somebody starts calling you names and that's their first line of their argument, thank them. Thank them for calling you those names. Because the first thing that tells you is they have no argument that will stand against what you just spoke. So now I'm just going to mock you, ridicule you, and make fun of you. Right? These ad hominem attacks. Thank you for calling me that. You've got no basis You've got no truth. You've got no evidence that you can bring up against the argument of Christianity that I just presented. Thank you. This guy, is he deals with data. Why, Man, if his worldview is true, why didn't he just bring this, this myriad of evidence against Christianity to prove it's wrong? Instead, mock them and ridicule them in public. The evidence isn't there. The evidence isn't there. Questions? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Second Corinthians ten five. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I got ten minutes. The last thing is, it leads the lost to the gospel. It's not the gospel, but it gets you there to where you can share the gospel. That's the final purpose of apologetics. Again, the goal is not to win an argument, but instead to persuade unbelievers. And you just go through and you just read Paul in the last part of Acts, right, where where he's in Athens and stuff. He says, let us reason together. He's not quoting scripture to them. Let us reason together. Let us talk about this and share these ideas and weigh these ideas and challenge them. Persuade unbelievers, right? The desired result is the salvation of the unbeliever. That's the desired result. And then we grow them in Christ-likeness from there. Apologetic saves no one, only the gospel does. That's my clarifier there to keep me out of trouble, okay? Leads to the lost. Apologetics helps guide skeptics and unbelievers through today's worldview maze. 
And again, I just I always looked at apologetics as, man, there's a cross on this wall, but man, there's just all kinds of stuff that's cluttered and you can't even see it. And so apologetics allows us, man, I'm going to move this piece out. And I'll answer another question, and I move this piece out. And then you start to get a glimmer of the cross. And as we're removing those doubts, as we're removing those challenges, it allows them to clearly see the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what apologetics will do. It uses facts and evidences that lead to God's truth and their salvation. The more, and this is Josh McDowell, right? He was before Lee Strobel. He was another atheist, kind of another chip on his shoulder. I'm going to prove that Christianity is wrong. Basically the same story of Lee Strobel, only it was on California. The more I examined the evidence, the more it took me to the opposite conclusion of what I wanted to reach, that the Bible is the very word of God, and Jesus Christ is his son, and he was raised from the dead on the third day. I had finally arrived at the conclusion that what my mind told me was true. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Apologetics should include a clear message sent through the life of the apologist. How you live out your faith matters. How you live out your faith matters. You can speak truth all day long, but if you're not living that truth, the world knows it. The world knows how you and I are supposed to live as Christians. And when you don't, it wrecks the testimony of the gospel. Every apologist should reflect Jesus in their character. Right? Sadly, the best argument against Christianity can be a life that in no way represents the teachings of Christ. So apologetics will strengthen your faith, help you defend the faith, refute errors, lead others to the faith. So what kind of Christian will you be? First Chronicles 12.32 says, Of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the time with knowledge of what Israel was to do. Man, the men of it, they understood the reality of the world that they were living in. Right? Because if you don't understand what's going on, you're going you're gonna to struggle to offer solutions. You're going to struggle to reach people where they're at. They understood the times, and then they knew what to do. They knew the solutions to offer the tribe of Issachar. Acts 17, 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Man, God has put you here in this place, in this time, for his purpose. Man, there's nothing I'd like better to go live on a mountain than the Colorado Rockies and call it, call it good. God's not called me to that. He's called me to Memphis, Tennessee today for his purpose and his design. This is where he's called you. Until he takes you home or moves you away, this is your field. Let's be faithful to it. Let's be faithful to it. So homework. All right. So think about what are two or three things that you learned tonight or that you just felt compelling. You may, you may not have learned anything, but you said, I really like that. Write those two or three things down and go find somebody to teach that to. Mom, dad, brother, sister, neighbor, doesn't make any difference. Right? 
The best way to learn something is to teach it and then to go do it. So write down two or three things and then go teach somebody those things. Okay? We good? Last thing is, these are some short little videos to put out by the Colson, uh, Colson Center for uh, Biblical Worldviews. They're about five or six minutes long a piece, and it's literally dealing with that idea of questions. You know, what questions do you ask when you get into difficult things? They're great. Uh, one, they're great because they're six minutes long, and two, it's just very beneficial. It's stuff that you can learn and you can put into use, and so I would encourage you to go and watch these videos. I think, I think you'll find them helpful. All right, so we'll be back here again next week.